and Yoga Podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank you all who have subscribed, listened, and shared and supported the show. We recently hit the 10,000 download mark. When we first launched in early 2020, the only goal that I had was first, just to start, because this is something I have been thinking about for years, and two was to provide a community of support not just to first responders, but their family, so that no one ever had to feel alone. And really just to offer a platform to educate on all the amazing resources, programs, and tools for those on the front lines. This is personal for me. My husband and I are both retired law enforcement officers, and my husband also served in the United States Marine Corps. Many of my friends are first responders, several whom have already retired, Some have done the work to heal, and some not so much. It's important to me that we talk about trauma, wellness, and healing so that no one ever has to feel that they are alone, and more importantly, that we start these conversations early in a career so that retirement doesn't look like a physical, mental, and emotional train wreck. I am honored to do the show. It lights me up when I release an episode because I get to speak with interesting and amazing people, first responders, subject matter experts, authors, and those running programs committed to first responders. It doesn't feel like work. So thank you again for listening, sharing, and supporting the show. As we move forward, I ask that you share, give reviews, and provide feedback. I'm always looking for input and feedback and ideas and want this to be a collaborative platform. Yeah, I'll be the one podcasting, but as the show moves forward, I want you, the listener, to tell me what you'd like more of and really what you'd might like less of. Now on to the show. This past weekend, I drove back from our family vacation. We went to Alta, Wyoming and Driggs, Idaho. It was amazing, but the drive back was 16 hours, so I had quite a bit of time to kill. I took the opportunity to read the book written by this week's guest, Michael Sugru. My conversation with him uh, happened several weeks ago, and I didn't yet have the time to read the book. So not only did I listen back to our conversation, I was able to read the entire thing from cover to cover, and it was not difficult. It was so amazing and easy to read. Michael is an Air Force veteran. And he is a medically retired sergeant from the Walnut Creek Police Department in California. He recently released the book, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma, with whom he co-authored with Dr. Shauna Springer. At the time of our conversation, his book had been on the number one bestseller list since its release five weeks in a row. What's funny is that Michael told me that he had no desire to ever write a book or to even share his story. But a phone call from his co-author led to the release of a story that absolutely needed to be told. I have read countless books on the topic of frontline trauma, but this one really is unique. It's different. Without giving too much away, the book alternates between Michael's voice and Doc Springer's analysis as she unpacks what Michael was going through, what was going on in his mind. And her explanations are really easy to understand and help to normalize what Michael was feeling, his actions, and his emotions and behaviors. The big takeaway was that first responders need a safe place where they can address their trauma so that healing can happen. And this can look like a combination of peer support, 
culturally competent clinicians, and other things. Michael is an advocate for awareness, prevention, and education, and training on post-traumatic stress injury and first responder suicide prevention. He is a peer volunteer at the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat and an ambassador for the Save a Warrior program. Michael discusses both of these programs in our conversation and references them both in his book. Michael talks about a fatal shooting that he was involved in shortly after he was promoted to the rank of sergeant. He discussed the duality of the instant change in his personality and the more gradual onset of symptoms. Michael discusses feeling detached and emotionally numb immediately following his shooting and how he slowly became less sympathetic and empathetic towards others. Michael discusses how he suffered in silence for four years, divorce, health issues, a federal lawsuit, grieving his father's death, and his friend's suicide attempt, which he credits to saving his life and what propelled his path to healing. Some of the highlights of our discussion include Michael's healing path, which for him looked like the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat, the Save a Warrior program, therapy, prescription medication, support group meetings, and a medical procedure called Stellate Ganglion Block, or SGB. I had never heard of this medical procedure, and in the show notes, you will see a link to a video that Michael references in our interview. We also talk about agency betrayal and moral injury. This is a big piece of his book, and Michael says that oftentimes this is what puts people over the edge. And in his case, he attributes the moral injury and the treatment by his agency to how his and why his personality changed. In the book, Michael recounts the countless ways in which his fatal shooting, while his defining incident, was compounded by media accounts, court proceedings, lack of a structure in which officer-involved shootings were handled internally, and isolation. Michael suggests the only way that we can overcome stigma is that we need to keep talking about this. We need to have the courage and strength to have these vulnerable conversations. Michael says, be willing to try new things. An example he gives is EMDR. I've talked about this before on the show. So many people have discussed how this has been crucial in their healing, but it didn't work for Michael. He knows that it's worked for others, but that didn't stop him. He kept trying and looking for other healing modalities. Michael says it's possible to retire healthfully from a first responder career, and it starts with discussing the human side of what we go through during our career, and it's a crucial piece to the puzzle. Michael reminds us that healing is a lifelong journey. This is a reality and not intended to discourage anyone. We all fall back. We can all get triggered, but when we do, there is support. Now, on to the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Michael. So glad you could finally make it on the Guns and Yoga podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, so am I. Um, So today, for the listeners, we have Michael Sugru. He is a retired sergeant from the Walnut Creek Police Department in California, and you also served in the United States Air Force, and you've written a book. And so I'm really excited for the listeners to hear all about your career and your book. So thanks again for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure. Maybe we could just start out, and I'm sure, you know, I know before I hit record, you said you'd been done, done like 50 of these. So I'm sure you're used to this, but if you could just kind of start out 
and tell us what, you know, what kind of led to your decision and career in military and law enforcement um, that ultimately landed you in the spot you're in today where you're writing a book called, by the way, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. So the really the only reason why I pursued a career in both the military and law enforcement was because of my stepfather. Uh, he's the one that actually raised me and he was a police sergeant and then police lieutenant. He worked for a couple different agencies here in California. And I remember at a very young age, I believe around eight years old is when I actually got the bug and I became a volunteer at his first department, the Sausalito police department. And it was, it's kind of funny now, but I remember getting my first official laminated ID card and it, and it said Sausalito police on it. And I remember it just being like the coolest thing. I felt, I felt part of this family, you know, something bigger, something more important. And I saw the camaraderie and the, the friendships and, and the family feel um, from my father and his coworkers. And it was from that moment on that literally I, I planned my whole life around becoming a police officer. And my plans did change a little bit. So through high school, I became a police explorer. And my original plan was to go to college and then get my degree and go into the FBI. But what I realized early on was that back then to go into the FBI, in addition to your degree, you had to have some like real life, you know, world experience. And so my plan was to go into the military, into the Air Force, do my four years, get out and then go into the FBI. And so I went into the Air Force right after college as a second lieutenant in security forces which that's basically military police, anti-terrorism, force protection. And I loved it. I mean, I, I loved my time in the Air Force. And they offered me an assignment in Germany. And I wasn't going to turn that down. So I ended up staying in longer than I planned on. And I was actually living in Germany when 9-11 happened. And shortly after that, I was in the Middle East. And I also did some time in, in South America and traveled all over the world. And Really looking back, I, I really miss my military days. And my only regret is that I wish I would have stayed in on the reserve side while I pursued a career in law enforcement. And while in the military, I had a lot of exposure to different federal agencies, the FBI, the marshals. And I realized that it just, that wasn't for me. I wanted to come back to California and be a local police officer in the Bay Area. And so that's what I pursued. And I got out of the Air Force in 04, got hired by the Walnut Creek Police Department, did very well, worked a bunch of different assignments from field training officer, detective. I was undercover on a state drug task force, got promoted very quickly to sergeant. And that's actually when my life changed. Um, a couple of weeks after being promoted to sergeant, I was involved in a fatal incident where a man with a butcher knife was trying to kill a couple. And that incident literally forever changed me as a person, but it also changed my path. And to make a long story short, after years and years of suffering and silence from post-traumatic stress uh, to the point where I, I literally didn't want to be here anymore, I decided to finally ask for help. And that's what my book is about. That's why I'm here today is that I want to shed light on the mental health stigma that surrounds not just law enforcement, but all our first responders, all our military members. And there's so many of our brothers and sisters out there that are just suffering in silence right now as we speak. And, and the facts are this, is that we are much more likely to die by our own hands 
than the hands of another. And that's, that's the dark reality of what we're talking about is suicide is taking us at greater numbers than anything else. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. You know, um, one thing that I, I do want to comment on is, you know, your decision to not go federal. Uh, I can relate to that. You know, in my background, I have, I was, I started out as a federal special agent and only did it for two years because I'd only just wanted to be a street cop, a detective. And um, so I can understand because a lot of people are confused by that decision um, because I wanted to be boots on the ground, you know, doing the job. So I understand and can relate as far as your decision to, to do that. And what, what I want to ask is before we get into what you just said about stigma and the importance of really talking about these things is, you know, when you were before your incident that you, you kind of, you mentioned that everything changed after that particular incident, how long had you been on and as far as um, trauma, secondary trauma, exposure to things and how you handled it, how, what did that look like? As you, as you now kind of unfold and unpack some of this stuff, can you look back and see that maybe there were some other things that, that you kind of compartmentalized or, or is it just this particular incident, everything was fine up until that point? So, you know, the, the reality is, is that I was exposed to hundreds of traumatic incidents like most first responders are. And I think when we start our career out, we're so eager, we're so gung-ho, we're so motivated, and we almost have this feeling of invincibility that we can do anything and that nothing's ever going to touch us. And I truly believe that for most of my career. I literally felt like that even knowing how dangerous the job was, that nothing was ever going to hurt me. Nothing was ever going to affect me. And like most first responders, you know, I tried that the technique of, you know, nothing bothers me. I'm going to disassociate from it. This is just the job. You know, this has nothing to do with me. These aren't my friends. These aren't my family. And the reality is that we're human and we see a lot of messed up things. And looking back on my career, I mean, I could name incident after incident from, you know, heinous domestic violence calls to fatal car accidents, to child deaths, to suicides, to natural deaths, to homicides. I mean, just incident after incident. And I'm not unique. I'm not special. I mean, our first responders across the nation are exposed to hundreds of traumatic incidents throughout their career. And the difference was for me is that when my shooting happened, so I'd been in the Air Force for six and a half years. And then I was eight years into my civilian law enforcement career when my shooting happened. And so when you look at that totality of it, you know, we're talking about over 14 years of exposure to traumatic incidents. And the reality of my incident was that this was the closest that I had come to ever being killed. I mean, it was literally up close, right in my face. And for whatever reason, that feeling of in invincibility that I had my whole life, it was gone in, a, in an instant. And after that, all I could think about was my young daughter at the time. She was only, you know, a couple years old. And all I could think about was that I'm not going to be here for her. You know, she's not going to remember her father. Like, who's going to raise my daughter? And so I went from this just almost having this force field of invincibility to the harsh reality that, yes, you can be killed. And I actually almost was killed. And so I think that 
was the critical difference for me. And, you know, in my work, I talk to a lot of first responders and you never know what the tipping point is going to be. You never know what the breaking point is going to be. Oftentimes it's not the worst or most traumatic incident. It's just that perfect storm of everything going on in your life at that time. And that call just puts you over the edge. And in my case, it was my shooting that just put me over the edge. That's a really good point because it's going to be different things for different people. Everybody's going to, you know, it's going to be different depending on who you are, what your circumstances are, just like you said. And when you talk about, and I know we don't want to get too much into detail because I want people to buy your book and read this, but if you could just touch upon what some of it looked like, you said after that point, you, you know, things were different. What did that look like for you as far as, you know, maybe physically, emotionally, mentally, how you interacted with the people at your agency and your family? And how long did it go before you finally made the decision ultimately to, to get help? You know, I would say that some things were almost instant, but most things were more of a gradual buildup. And so I remember going home after my shooting, being up for over 24 hours. And I remember my wife at the time greeting me at the door with my young daughter. And I remember just at that moment feeling detached. I felt emotionally numb. I just felt cut off. And I had never felt that way before. And it was, it was an instant, noticeable, tangible change. Um, but I also remember that I was so exhausted and almost still in shock that this actually happened that I just wanted to go to sleep. And that was my initial answer was that, oh, I can just go to sleep. This is probably some bad nightmare that I'm going to wake up from. It, it didn't happen and things are going to get better. And the reality was that, you know, I couldn't sleep. I was having constant nightmares. I started drinking a lot more, just hoping to pass out so I could fall asleep. I became distant from my spouse. I wasn't talking to her. I didn't share anything about my incident for a couple of reasons. I mean, the first one was I was ordered not to talk about it. I was under parallel investigations with my department, with the DA's office, which is common practice. But I also didn't have that support system of a clergy person or a peer support person or a clinician or a therapist that I could trust. Because back then, those were things that I didn't believe in. I didn't think that I needed. I didn't see a purpose for those things. And so... Gradually, after just keeping it in, things got much, much worse. They didn't get better. And it got to the point where my marriage started falling apart. Um, it got to the point where I literally became so angry and so upset at work that I lost empathy and sympathy for the people I was leading and supervising. In my mind, I just thought, these people have no idea what it means to have a real problem. You know, their problems aren't anything compared to my problems. And so I really lost sight of my role and my, my job and my purpose as a leader and supervisor. And, you know, I suffered in silence for almost four full years. And that involved losing my marriage and then fighting for custody of my daughter, eventually going through a full federal lawsuit where I was defendant in federal court in San Francisco on trial um, to multiple health issues, repeated skin cancer diagnoses, Losing my father that I talked about in the beginning of this interview, he died suddenly of cancer. He was my hero, my everything. And it wasn't until my best friend, John, who I talk about in the book, he tried to kill himself 
um, a couple weeks after Thanksgiving in 2016. And it was about a month after that on the anniversary of my shooting is when I finally got the strength and courage to ask for help. And, and I tell my friend John to this day, he survived, thank God, but he saved my life by trying to take his own life because oh, wow. he woke me up out of the darkness. And, and I knew the guilt and the shame that I felt for not seeing what he was going through. All I could imagine was what is my daughter going to go through if I do this? And so literally he saved my life. Wow. That's pretty powerful. Thanks for sharing that. When, when you did come to that realization, did you know where to go? Were, were there like, like, where did, where did you go once you decided you needed to get help? So the first thing I did was, um, on that very day after breaking down in my car for two hours, I picked up my cell phone. I called the on-duty watch commander and I just said, look, you know, I, I can't do this. I need to get help. And, you know, thank God when he answered the phone, I mean, he, he's somebody that I respected that I trusted and, and we talked for a while and he listened and he right then and there told me, he's like, look, I'm going to make some notifications. I'm going to get everything you need going. You know, we're going to take care of you. And so immediately I was embraced by my agency and I felt the support and he recommended that I call a therapist who was contracted with our department. And I knew her, I liked her, she was respected. And I had had a couple talks with her after my shooting, but I really didn't have that close relationship. And so immediately I started talking to her and she is culturally competent, which is key to this whole thing is that when you are connected with a therapist or a clinician, they have to be culturally competent. They have to understand the uniqueness about what it is that we see and what we do. And thank God I was connected to her. And shortly after that, I was connected to my therapist who I ended up seeing for, for several years. And I remember on our first meeting, this therapist who I didn't know, I'd heard good things about her, but she shared a very dark, deep, personal story of her life with me. And that in that instant, I knew that I could trust her with my life. I knew that she understood it. I knew that it wasn't something she just read about in a book, but that she lived through it and came out the other side. And that was the key is that I had somebody I can now trust that I could talk to who is living proof that you can come out the other side of post-traumatic stress. And that was the key to my recovery is, is knowing that it is possible to get better. Well, and, and it sounds like, um, once you made the decision to get help that your agency, like you said, use the word embraced it and embraced you and, and got your in, headed in the right direction as far as resources and therapists that ultimately led you to that, to that other clinician. Absolutely. And, you know, things were going pretty well for a while and it was, about six months into my recovery. So at this point, I'm seeing my therapist um, every week. I'm going to first responder support meetings, which were remarkable. I ended up going through the West Coast post-trauma retreat as a client, which I now volunteer for as a peer. And, you know, the combination of all these things were really, they were working. I was seeing progress, but I still knew I wasn't ready to go back to work. And unfortunately, what happened was there was a turn. And things went from embracing me, you know, trying to get better to, you know, when are you going to be back? Like, how soon are you going to be back? Do you have a date? Like, what's your plan to actually trying to talk me into retiring? And 
the thing was that, as I mentioned, being a police officer for me was something that I knew I wanted to do since I was a child. It was a calling. This wasn't some random job that I picked, but this was my life's calling. And my goal was to go back to work the entire time. But the difference was, is that that support, it started going away. And I felt my blue family, my quote unquote family start to turn their back on me. And that was very, very pivotal because that admin betrayal, which I talk about extensively in my book, that is often what pushes pushes people over the edge. It's not so much the traumatic incident. It's how they're treated when they need that support the most. And when, you know, our quote unquote family turns their back on us, that's what is costing lives. Yeah. And, and I think that we can't talk about that enough because, you know, we, it's almost, you know, I don't want this to come out wrong, but it's almost like we expect the bad guys to, to want to hurt us, but we don't expect it from our own family. And so there's a, a whole different layer. And I, I think it can be called moral injury, organizational betrayal. Um, but I, I couldn't agree more. I've talked to so many people and quite honestly, I've experienced that myself, which led to me ultimately making a decision to retire from my police career. Um, so I'm really glad you brought that up. And um, it's good for people to hear that maybe they're not necessarily struggling and have the same exact story that led you to where you're at, but maybe that that betrayal piece, because that can look a lot of different things for pe different people. And see, that's the key to everything is that Oftentimes we, we feel like we're alone. We feel like we're the only ones who are experiencing what we're experiencing or, or being treated the way we are. And I'm not unique and I'm not special. And the many things that I talk about in this book, they resonate with countless people because we've all felt these same things. We've all dealt with moral injury or, or admin betrayal. And the thing is, you don't realize how common it is until we just start talking about it. And like you said, it's not talked about enough. And so by literally burying my soul and putting it all out there for the world to see, that's what's going to open people's eyes to realize that, oh, it's not just me. There's so many other people that are dealing with the exact same things that I am. And more importantly, there is help and there is hope. Yep. And, you know, again, you can't have too many people talking about this because, you know, for me, you know, I, I, I still am in my full-time job and also just personally with people that I'm, you know, have been friends with and work with in my career. There's a lot of people that I talk to that are struggling for different reasons and everybody has a different, you know, story or entryway into where they've landed right now, but there's so many commonalities and one of the biggest things, like you said, is we isolate because we think that there's something wrong with us because of the way we're feeling and responding and things have caught up to us, whatever the case may be. And so I don't think that um, too many people, we can't have enough people like you willing to talk about these hard things because my guess is it's not always been this fluid for you to be able to talk about the things that you're talking and sharing with us today. Oh, I, I felt so much shame and guilt and embarrassment that it was years and years that I didn't talk about it. I mean, I remember even a couple years into my recovery when I actually already, you know, decided to retire from law enforcement, I couldn't tell anybody about it. I couldn't talk to anybody about it because I felt so, you know, shameful, embarrassed, like I felt weak. 
I felt like nobody was going to understand it. And it's, it's kind of an ironic story, but um, the tide turned in early 2019. I retired in 2018 and there was actually a podcast host. His name was Danny Bird. And I didn't know him. He was a former cop. And he literally harassed me, thank God, for months to be on his show. I had no desire. And eventually he drove two hours to me, set up a camera, a laptop, and a Mimi's Cafe, and we did the interview. And that was absolutely pivotal to my life and the journey that I'm on today. Because when that interview got shared, it was the good, it was the bad, it was the ugly, things that I didn't talk about with anybody. And it was now out there for the world to hear and see. And the thing was, I couldn't control it anymore. And that's what I was trying to do was control everything, like to put up this perception that I was perfect and my life was perfect. And the, the, the reality was, is that I got countless messages from all over the world, from other first responders and military veterans who told me how much it resonated with them. And they started sharing their stories. And that is what put me on this path today where I do talk about it openly, freely, with no shame, no embarrassment, because I know now that asking for help is the most courageous thing I've ever done. It's nothing I did on the streets. It's nothing I did in the military. It's not the shoot the incident where I almost died. It was asking for help. Yeah. Truer words could not have been spoken because you're, you're right. I mean, we, are so good about doing all the hard things, but yet when it comes to taking care of ourselves, that seems to be the most difficult thing for us to do. Absolutely. And we don't, we don't train for it. We don't talk about it. I mean, think of the hundreds, if not thousands of hours that we spend on defensive tactics, shooting, you know, evasive driving. I mean, all these things to protect us from the bad people, right? The bad guy. But how much training do we do to protect ourselves from the humanity and the trauma of the job? Yeah, we both, well, we know the answer and I hope that's changing because, um, you know, what's encouraging about, about this, and I still think we have such a long way to go, is that agencies are becoming more and more aware of these things um, and training is, I think, starting to become implemented a little bit sooner. So I know at the agency that I work at, um, we do some things with recruits. So at least we're planting seeds early on. I, I do also recognize that maybe some of that doesn't, you know, really resonate because they can't identify with it, but at least it's consistent messaging throughout a career to let them know if this is you, then don't wait for it to get to this point. You, you have help, you have resources. So, but, but when I went through 25 years ago, there was zero, zero talk of any of this stuff. And, and I agree with you hundred percent. And I, I know the reality of it too, is that, you know, when our cadets are in the academy, you know, you're not interested in that type of stuff and you're probably not going to retain that aspect of it. But I think if we just plant the seed in their head and we bring in senior officers who have been through it and they just talk about the realities of the job and the toll on their personal life. If you just plant that seed and then you carry that on through the humanity side of, of field training and so on, I think we can change the stigma. I think we can change the culture, but like you said, you know, think back to your career and try to remember the first time that you ever heard another police officer acknowledge 
the human side, the human toll of the job. I mean, that's what you have to ask yourself is when did I first hear about this? When did somebody openly, vulnerably share what they went through? You know, because we don't do it. We ask ourselves in the hallways, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Okay, you doing good? It's all superficial. We never go beyond that superficialness. We need to know our people. We need to know when they're struggling. And we need to have the strength and courage to have these vulnerable conversations with them when we do. Yeah. I mean, I, I look back at all the times where I was guilty of that, where, you know, you, you knew something was not right with someone that you worked with because we spent so much time together, but yet you didn't really know what to say or do. And so, and I've been there myself and, and I see such a difference now when people that are respected and they've, you know, they've built trust and we have relationships with them. We've worked with them. If someone's willing to talk about some really difficult things, similar to what you just shared, it, it goes, you, I don't really think there's anything that you can do to duplicate that because it shows that first of all, you're not alone and that the bravery of that person to talk about something so difficult, I've seen the impact of how that ripple effect has really done wonders at the agency that I'm at because not so much because you want to sit there and hear of all these things that somebody has gone through, but the benefit of that for one other person to hear that, to know that they're not alone and that there is a way out. You know, we, we had a guy um, recently on our peer support team who'd been struggling with something for many, many years. And he openly is talking about his therapy and going through EMDR and he talks about that and he wants to share it with people. He's still healing, but to do that in hopes that maybe someone else he can encourage and help and let them know, hey, I've been through this. This was really hard. I'm still going through it, but look at what's helped me. Absolutely. And again, it's normal, right? I mean, the reality is, is that this is all normal. These are normal feelings, but we try to pretend like it's not normal and it's not normal to talk about it. And, you know, I'm not saying to make every incident a huge ordeal on the job, but after the scene is cleared and things have died down, let's address just the, the human side of it. Let's acknowledge it, you know, and, and we can move on. I, I firmly believe that you can get full through a full 30 year career and come out healthy on the other side, as long as you're talking about this stuff. But in my case, I waited far too long to the point that it almost cost my life. And, and if you wait too long, it's hard to come back from that. It's hard to sustain a career in law enforcement. But if we make this, you know, regular thing, a normal thing, we can get through this job and we can live long, healthy lives on the other side. Yeah. And, and programs like you mentioned, like WCPR, and I know there's a lot of others, um, things like that, that can aid us. And, you know, obviously you mentioned so many different ways that you've been supported, but programs like that are a really big factor in all of this. And I don't think that enough people, first of all, know about them. And also, I don't know that they're available in all parts of the country. So, and, and I guess I wanted to talk to you about WCPR anyway, if you could kind of educate the listeners a little bit about some of the resources that you mentioned. Um, you also uh, talked about a first responder support group, and I don't know if that's something separate from WCPR or, or, or that's what you were talking about. So the first runner support meetings, um, it's, it's separate, but it's related. So I found out mm -hmm. about those through my therapist and they have them all over the U S um, where I live here in California. They're, they're all over the place. 
And I also know that on the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat website or FRSN, they have a listing of some of these meetings, like where they're held, the time, there's a point of contact with a phone number. And basically they're discussion meetings. It's usually an hour long. They have them at offsite facilities. They're not associated with any agency and it's confidential. You don't use your last name. It's only for first responders. So paramedics, dispatchers, firefighters, cops. And for me, the power behind it was just realizing that I wasn't alone. I mean, the first few meetings I went to, I remember just listening. And that's where I saw for the first time in my career, you know, grown men and women who were being open and vulnerable and sharing these things that I was thinking, but I couldn't talk about. And so that's the key to this is knowing you're not alone. But to build off that, the West Coast post-trauma retreat, which is almost a week-long residential retreat only for first responders, a lot of the people at these meetings have already been through WCPR. So I remember when I first started going to these meetings, I met people who had been through WCPR. So I was learning about the program. I was hearing about it. I was getting comfortable with it. And so I applied to the West Coast and I went through as a client in May of 17. And that program forever changed my life. I mean, it was, they call it magic, but I mean, literally in a matter of like a day, day and a half max, you see strangers, people you've never met in a room with like 20 plus people that are sharing things they've never shared their entire life. But somehow they feel the trust and the comfort to know that they can finally get this off their chest. They can finally talk about it and get the help they need and, and, and know they're not alone. I mean, it's almost indescribable to talk about witnessing this now. When I go back as a peer, like I said, and seeing a grown man and woman, you know, in their 40s, in their 50s, talk about maybe something that happened in their childhood that they haven't even told their own spouses, but yet they can say it in a room filled with a day and a half earlier were complete strangers. And that's the power behind these programs is knowing you're not alone. Now, West Coast also involves education. It involves therapy. It exposes you to EMDR, which you mentioned in the beginning. Um, it is just a phenomenal program. You know, the downside is there's a cost to WCPR. Um, a lot of times work comp will cover it. They do scholarships. They do payment plans. But there is a financial cost to it. Uh, but another program I want to mention is called Save a Warrior. Now, Save a Warrior, I went to uh, two years after WCPR. And I actually learned about this program through some WCPR alum. And this program focuses on complex post-traumatic stress, which most first responders don't want to talk about, but it's the childhood trauma. And that is actually what often leads us to become first responders in the first place. Um, I never even realized this or acknowledged it till I went through this program, but many of us, you know, it could be, it could be minor in the form of an emotionally distant parent or just an absent parent, or maybe someone who is an alcoholic or an addict, or it can be very extreme, like physical abuse, sexual abuse, but we become natural caretakers. We learn to overcome adversity at a very young age, and it actually makes us very, very good at what we do as first responders. But the thing is, we never deal with that. We never talk about it. We never address it. And so when we become first responders, we have our childhood trauma, and then we have our workplace trauma, and then we have our moral injury on top of that. 
And we need to deal with all of these things. And so Save a Warrior allows you to deal with the childhood trauma. Now, the beautiful thing about this program is there is no cost. It is absolutely free. It's not a full week. I think it's down about three and a half, four days now. Um, it's in Ohio or Southern California. All you have to do is get yourself there. But they cover the housing, the food, the program. And I'll be honest with you, I would have paid over $100,000 for what this program gave me. I mean, mm -hmm. literally, it gave me that last piece that I needed for my recovery. And it was invaluable. And the, the beautiful thing is, is that Save a Warrior, it's open to veterans, active military, and all first responders, whether you're active, off on injury, retired. And I assure you that these two programs, although they're similar, they're also very different, but they will forever change and save your life. Well, it's amazing. Thank you for sharing all that, those resources, because, you know, I don't think that people are aware that these things are even out there. And I know that there's probably even more than I'm not aware of. And and one thing I do want to mention is that you talked about WCPR. They have a website and they talk about the first responder support group. I think that's what you said. Um, but, you know, I don't know if you're familiar, you know, you're familiar with the national FOP, but they also have um, a, par a piece of their website that lists all these different resources. So if somebody listening is looking for a, a vetted program, and you mentioned being culturally competent as a therapist before, but also being culturally competent as far as these programs, because my guess is there's a lot of programs out there, but we need to make sure that they're the right fit for people who are first responders or, or military. And I don't know if you have any experience in that. I, I personally don't because I'm only familiar, familiar with WCPR and a program here locally called The Battle Within. Both are outstanding in their own right, but they're very different. And so that's something that I'm really glad you brought up because um, there's it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, in my opinion. And what I got out of attending The Battle Within is very different than WCPR. So if you're in talking to people, you know, you, you, you described it pretty good for you. You said that save a warrior was more about the complex, um, trauma and childhood trauma, whereas WCPR was, was structured a little bit differently. So if you had to recommend to somebody, which one to go to first, would it make a difference or would it just, would it just be dependent on which one they could make work? You know, you bring up a good point, but the recovery process is different for everybody. And mm -hmm. it is a multifaceted approach. Um, not, there is no magic bullet. There is no magic one program that works for everybody. And even like you said, I've truly had a combination of a lot of different things that have helped with my recovery. You know, the therapy, the meetings, medication, um, I'm involved in a program with Mission 22 right now, a year-long program. I've had stellate ganglion block, you know, WCPR, Save a Warrior. So all these things have added different things. And it's really hard to pinpoint, you know, what, what should be first or what point. So my advice is always go to whatever you can go to first. That's how I look at it is, you know, for some people, WCPR, there is a longer wait and there's a financial burden. And so get on the wait list, apply. And while you're waiting for that, it's possible you can go to Save a Warrior maybe in, in a few weeks or a month. And so maybe you go to that first, then maybe you go to WCPR. But don't ever turn down an opportunity. Um, everything does happen 
at the right time for the right reason. I, I truly believe that. And, you know, there are so many resources um, in the back of my new book. There is actually a listing of a bunch of different programs, um, different hotlines, text lines, um, you know, week long programs like WCPR, Save a Warrior. Um, there's the Mighty Oaks Foundation, which is a faith based program for first responders and combat veterans. Like I said, you know, you will find what works for you, but the key is try something, get out of your comfort zone and do something different because if you're not doing anything, you're not going to get better. And if you're just doing the same thing over and over and you're not making progress, nothing is going to change. And even years, years into my recovery, I'm still doing new things. I'm still trying new things because it's a process. It's not just a one and you're done. Right. It's definitely something that, you know, it's a lifelong process, I would say. I mean, even if, you know, you're, you're definitely um, a lot further along, um, to me, I know that I won't stop healing and trying to improve myself, you know, until the day I die. Absolutely. I mean, it is absolute life process. Now, I don't want listeners to be scared by that because, you know, I have a, a wonderful life now and I'm in a much better place than I've ever have been. But I think the key is knowing that, you know, you're going to be triggered. I don't care how much recovery, how many programs you've been through, you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. And so you need to be prepared and know how to deal with when those bad days happen or even when just things happen in life, like, you know, a relative gets diagnosed with cancer or somebody is in a bad car accident. I mean, these are things that happen, you know, all the time, but we have to be ready to deal with them, to, you know, deal with ourselves. And so my mentality is I'm always willing to try new things, to learn new things. You know, that's the key is that, you know, I think if you go into this with the expectation that I'm going to go do A and B and C, and then I'm done, I'm good to go for the rest of my life. I don't think that's the case. Um, I, I truly don't. It, it is a process. It's a lifelong process. And it takes patience. It takes dedications. And there's going to be setbacks. You know, there's going to be bad days and there's going to be good days. Yeah. And if something doesn't work, try something else. Because again, just because I might recommend a program or you might re recommend a program or a therapist for that matter, doesn't mean that that's what's going to resonate for that particular person. You know, what really just came to mind too, is you mentioned EMDR um, at the beginning of our talk, and it's something that they teach you at and expose you to at WCPR. And here's the thing for me, EMDR did not work. I mean, didn't work at all, but I have seen it personally work for tons of people. I mean, I've witnessed it myself. And that's one of those things where if you set yourself up thinking EMDR is the answer to everything and it doesn't work for you, then what are you going to do, right? And so my point is that, yeah, it works for some people, but it doesn't work for everyone. And I think you can say that with all these things that we're talking about. You know, for one person, WCPR, it may be good. But for another person, it could be absolutely life changing. You know, it, it just depends on who we are, where we're at. And to be honest with you, when I went through WCPR, I didn't even think about complex post-traumatic stress. So it wasn't something that I was going to talk about. I wasn't going to bring up because I wasn't ready to do that. And so as much as I may have wanted to, it wasn't going to happen. You know, it took this other program to bring that out.
Yep. No, that's a, that's a really good point. And one thing I, I do want to ask you shifting gears just a little bit is, you know, the decision to write the book, you mentioned that, that pivotal moment when you had that podcast interview and how that kind of shifted and changed things. But, um, how did you get to a point where you decided to, to write the book? It's actually kind of a cool story. So, um, Dr. Shauna Springer, who is my co-author, and she is phenomenal. She's worked with combat veterans and first responders most of her career. She published authors. She's written a couple different books. And she actually, a couple years ago, just sent me a message on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on LinkedIn all the time. It's one of my biggest platforms. I'm always sharing things on post-traumatic stress and suicide prevention. And so she just sent me a message saying, you know, I'd like to talk to you at some point and so we had a phone call and she was telling me about the work she's doing and um, specifically with stellate ganglion block, which is a medical procedure to treat the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress and kind of talking about her time with the VA and TAPS. And, you know, we had a great conversation. And, and during that conversation, she asked me, she's like, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, well, it's funny that you ask me that because I've been asked that before. And honestly, the answer is that it sounds like a great idea, but I honestly don't think I have the, I guess, will and motivation to actually make that happen. Um, I told her that, you know, after 20 plus years of, of report writing and writing the military and civilian law enforcement, I'm just honestly burnt out. And, and also from post-traumatic stress, you know, it affected my concentration, um, my focus. And so we kind of just left that conversation at that. And so a few months later, she reached back out to me and we had another great conversation. And she said, look, she's like, you know, your story, it's, it's really just stuck with me. She's like, you know, I've, I've treated countless combat veterans. I've, I've talked to, I mean, tons and tons of people, but she said, your story is really going to resonate and help save lives. And she's like, I want to make this happen. And so you know, and again, I, I just knew it. I knew it was right. I knew during this phone conversation that this is who I needed to work with. And so this book happened because of Dr. Shauna Springer. She made this a reality. And we started working together actually at the uh, right before COVID happened. And we ended up meeting virtually because we couldn't meet in person for like every week, like two hour long Zoom meetings. And we came up with this process and made it happen. And, and I got to tell you, like I said, Doc Springer is an amazing, amazing person. And she is saving lives every day. And, and the cool thing about this book is that it's not just my story. It's much bigger than my story. This book is about everyone. This book is going to help not just first responders, not just military. It's going to help their loved ones, their family members. But it's also going to help just people on the street. It's going to help them see the human side behind the uniform, the human side behind the badge. They're going to actually fully understand the toll of this job. And they're going to see us as humans, as people like them, not, you know, these invincible, unfeeling, robotic people out there in uniform. So th this book and the way it was done is, is absolutely groundbreaking. And, and I know it's already saving lives without a doubt. Well, that was a really awesome endorsement for the book because I am convinced when you and I are done, I'm going to go buy it. <laughs> so it sounds amazing, really. Well, you know, and here's the crazy thing. Again, something I thought would never happen, but today is actually 
the exact five week anniversary of the book releasing. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And, and we have actually been a number one bestseller since day one, every single day for five straight weeks. And that's awesome. I've gotten messages, you know, we've gotten reviews, feedback. Everyone has said, once you start this book, you cannot put it down. And, and I assure you, I promise you, if you just take a few clicks on your computer and you get this book and actually pick it up, you will not be able to put it down. Guaranteed. Okay, well, you don't need to convince me anymore because I'm already going to get it. So, <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear your thoughts after. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. One one thing that you mentioned, and by the way, that's that is an amazing story. I mean, things are just meant to happen when they're supposed to happen. I mean, of all the people that she decided to reach out to, um, you know, in her line of work, all the people that she's probably met and counseled, she you know, she reached out to you and there was a reason for that. So, you know, I, I truly believe that things are meant to happen and people are meant to connect at the right time, the right place. So. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Absolutely. And, and this happened for a reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most definitely. And, um, you, you mentioned that when she first contacted you and I can't, I'm going to butcher this, so I'm not even going to try to say it, but that there was a procedure that you and her discussed a medical procedure. Do you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I've actually had it done. So um, okay. it's called stellate ganglion block or SGB. And actually it's a medical procedure that's been around for over a hundred years. It's actually was used for pain blocks. So it's basically, it's done by an anesthesiologist, only done by a medical doctor. They use a common anesthetic. I, I think it's often used like in uh, labor and delivery. And they deliver the anesthetic to a certain area of nerves within your neck. And the whole idea is to help block pain. Well, and again, don't uh, quote me on the exact date, but I want to say about 20 years ago, there was a doctor who was actually just by chance discovered that this procedure works for post-traumatic stress. Hmm. And so they did a lot of studies, did a lot of research, and they actually started using it on special operators in the military, like Green Berets, Delta Force, Navy SEALs. And, um, you know, and it's, it's kind of interesting because a lot of people haven't heard about this, but it, 60 Minutes actually did an episode on SGB years back. You can actually Google it, and there's a YouTube rewind on 60 Minutes about SGB. And so, you know, when I first heard about it, I'm like, ah, this, this, I don't know. It sounds kind of weird. It's too good to be true. And so I did my own research and I talked to some other people that had had it done, some combat veterans. And I said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to give this a try. You know, let's do this. And so I went down to San Jose, which is a couple hours south of me. And there was a doctor there specifically trained in this procedure. The procedure itself only takes like five, 10 minutes max. And they use imaging, whether it's a sonogram or some kind of imaging device. And they basically give you two little injections on the right side of your neck in a specific bundle of nerves. I believe it's somewhere between the C4 and C6. And the whole concept is, is that the anesthetic will basically slow down the amygdala, which is the primitive brain. That's the one, or sorry, primitive part of your brain that causes kind of like the fight or flight. It causes the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And so it basically slows down the firing of the amygdala. And so this procedure, it's not a permanent procedure and it's not, you don't go in there and you get cured of post-traumatic stress. 
the idea is, is that it reduces the physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress and it allows you to work on what you need to work on. So you should be following up the procedure with therapy or group meetings or programs like we talked about, but it's not just you go and you get a shot, you're cured, you're all good. Sure. It's really a combination approach now, but also understand that when you go get this procedure, the doctor is not a therapist. They're not a clinician. They don't even talk to you about your trauma. So you don't have to relive your trauma when you get this procedure done. It's literally a medical procedure done by a medical doctor. And so for me, I immediately noticed a reduction in my physical symptoms of post-traumatic stress. I didn't have any negative side effects. The procedure itself was painless. Um, I noticed that my focus was better. My concentration was better. I wasn't getting as upset easily or road raging. Um, I felt more calm. I felt more relaxed. And for some people, it can last you know, six months. Some people can last three years. It's really different for everybody. Um, I don't know the exact percentage rate, but I want to say for most people, um, they always start with a right side injection. I want to say it's like an 80% effective rate the first time. But some people have to go back and get a second injection on the left side of your neck. And so, again, stellate, ganglion block, or you can just Google SGB for PTSD. And it's it's being used all across the country. And it's, again, a life-changing procedure. But just realize that you have to follow it up with other things. You can't just right. go get a shot and, and call it a day. Yeah, it's not a quick fix. And that's amazing. I've never heard of that before. And so in order to go get the procedure, do you need some sort of a referral from a therapist or a psychologist, or is it something that you just go to the medical doctor and say, Hey, I want to get this done. You don't need any referral. Um, the company that I know most is called Stella S T E L L A. They're based out of Chicago. Um, Dr. Eugene Lipoff is one of the pioneering doctors that actually, um, found out that this works for post-traumatic stress. He's actually still doing the procedures in Chicago. And so Stella trains doctors across the nation, actually all over the world now, I think in Australia and a few other countries on how to do this procedure. So all you have to do is contact Stella and they'll let you know the nearest doctor in your area that does this procedure. You make an appointment and you go from there, but there's no referral. You don't have to get diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. It's, it's a medical procedure, physical procedure. Well, and my guess is you don't need a referral because for somebody to get the procedure isn't, it doesn't sound like there's any um, side effects to it. Like you don't have to be quote unquote diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, although you might think you have it. Is, am, am I right in my, in kind of my thinking right. here? Okay. No, you're absolutely right. And I actually know I've talked to a lot of people who have since gotten it done after me and they know they have post-traumatic stress, but they haven't gone and got diagnosed mm -hmm. because of the stigma and they're worried about ramifications at work. So they went and had the procedure done. And, you know, again, they found it very helpful. And, and that's the beauty of it is that, you know, there are virtually no side effects. This procedure has been around for a hundred years for pain, um, like 20 plus years for post-traumatic stress, but it's, it's a very simple procedure but it can have major impacts on your life. Wow. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Because like I said, I'd never heard of that before. And um, I'm definitely, I, I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll take that 60 minutes 
episode that you refer to and put it in the show notes when I release this this podcast. Absolutely. And we do actually talk about it in the book too. So there is a lot of information on SGB in our book. Oh, good to know. Good. So uh, but as we wrap up, is there anything, and we covered a lot of ground, a lot of territory today, which I really appreciate. If there was maybe one last thing, one last bit, uh, bit of advice that you had to offer or something that you just want to share that maybe we didn't cover, what, what would that be? Well, I want anybody that's listening to this who thinks they're alone, who's out there suffering in silence, I want you to know that you're not alone. I want you to know that there is help and more importantly, there is hope. You know, I waited far too long and it almost cost me everything. All you have to do is raise your hand and ask for that help. And I assure you, there's a whole new life on the other side. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate your time and and your willingness and courage to share your story. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, please share, subscribe, and review. Be sure to see the links in the show notes for resources mentioned in this episode. And remember, we are better together. Now I'm stuck here.